and even when you say stuff wrong, you're still more right than the average Republican in Congress right now. <laughs> Is anybody Hello and welcome to the Collier County Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer and I'm the vice chair of the Collier Democratic Party and the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for clicking on. On this week's podcast, we have interviews with the two candidates competing in the Democratic primary for U.S. House District 19, Dr. Cindy Banier and Mr. David Holden. To refresh everyone's memory, the current incumbent of U.S. House District 19 is Congressman Francis Rooney, a Republican, and he is retiring after the end of this term. So the winner of the August 18th primary will face off against the winner of a Republican primary on November 3rd. So check out these interviews and support both of these candidates if you can. Later on in this episode of the Roundup, Amber and Linda and I dive into the Trump administration's push to repeal Obamacare in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, I said that correctly. Let's get rid of insurance for people during a health crisis. And we look at the decision by the Trump administration and Governor DeSantis to reopen schools without much of a plan on how to do so. Yet another good idea. But before we get into all of that, let's get some party info out of the way. We are continuing our candidate spotlights for our Democratic candidates. Our next event is on Tuesday, July 28th at 5.30 p.m. That is with County Commission District 1 candidate John Jenkins. You can sign up for this event on our website or on our Facebook page. For those of you who missed previous candidate spotlights, we have video recordings on our website gallery, so you can check them out there, or you can listen to the spotlights on Call Your Democratic Roundup podcast on special bonus episodes that are up right now. So please check out either of those opportunities. On August 16th, the Collier County Democratic Party will be doing a Riding with Biden caravan to show support for Vice President Joe Biden. Caravans like this will be happening all over the state ahead of the Democratic Party National Convention. We want all of you to participate in this socially distant event, so please sign up on our website or on Mobilize, where you will see the drive route, start location, stop locations, etc. So that's Sunday, August 16th at 2 p.m. Please sign up. Every week I ask listeners to volunteer for phone banks, and I need everyone to do just that. We are asking you to call Democrats and like-minded MPAs, no Republicans at this moment, And just ask them to commit to sign up for Vote by Mail and if they plan on supporting Joe Biden. And oftentimes when you pick up the phone and you call one of these Democrats, they're just delighted to talk to another Democrat in Collier County. It's a very good way to meet people and it's actually a very enjoyable experience. So we want all of you guys to sign up and volunteer today. Think if everyone just made three calls a day, how much of a difference that would make over the next three months. So you can sign up on our website. Please do so today. Last but not least, anyone who wants a Biden sign can still get one. They are available for a donation of $10, and we'll even drive them out to your house for you and place them in your yard. I mean, seriously, at this point, the confidence in which Trump supporters wave their Trump flags should make us all be equally confident in supporting a man who is far more competent and far more sincere than our current president. So please 
donate and receive a Biden sign and display it proudly because I think you can do so with much more confidence than the Trump supporters who are waving their flag proudly. All of this information can be found on our website, www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. So that's all the news for this week. We will be right back with our interviews of the Democratic candidates for U.S. House District 19, Dr. Cindy Banyer and Mr. David Holden. A quick programming note, the audio for this podcast was recorded nine days ago. Please keep that in mind when listening to the guests' answers and on our panel discussion. Hope you enjoy. This election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot this November, and we need your help. We cannot do many of the things we normally do this election year, but there are still many activities that are safe and can be done from home. We need volunteers to help out with things like writing postcards or making phone calls in a virtual phone bank that will help us win in November. If you have the time to help us, please go to www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. And click on the Get Involved button and become a volunteer. With your help, we can win in November. So today on the podcast, we have Democratic candidate for U.S. House District 19, Dr. Cindy Banyay. Cindy, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I have to ask you about the coronavirus while I've got you. The, uh, the state reported on Sunday 15,000 cases, setting the record for the country during the whole of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, Monday they, re- they recorded another 12,000 cases. I mean, to put that in perspective, the state of Florida has had more cases in the last five days than they had in the entire first three months of the pandemic combined. So I just want to get your thoughts on how our elected leaders, specifically here in Florida, have been uh, handling this. Oh, yeah. It's, this is the biggest failure in history. Trump, followed by his crony, Ron DeSantis, and all the way down the line, and every single Republican that's in lockstep with them. Um, this is a horrifying state of affairs for us, and completely preventable if we had listened to science and had leadership that put the interests of the people first instead of their own political beliefs and the interests of big business. Yeah, and moving off of that, Governor DeSantis and President Trump, uh, another uh, example of of a failure in leadership, seem to be determined to reopen schools seemingly without a plan or and kind of regardless of the consequences. What are your thoughts on schools being forced to reopen right now? Well, it's just another mismanagement, horrible biggest failure in history that we are all unfortunately living through. Um, I cannot believe that we had Trump saying that the schools must reopen or they're going to withhold funding, something that I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that he can't even do, frankly. And then he had uh, Betsy DeVos, who, by the way, has no history, personal history in public schools, is not a fan of public schools, telling our public schools, again, that they need to go back and open or they're going to risk losing their funding. And then again, 
Ron DeSantis following right in line with him. And, you know, I have two public school children um, who are, by the way, very eager to go back. But unfortunately, their little sister is somebody who's in that vulnerable population. You know, she's three years old, but the first two years of her life, she spent in and out of the hospital. And, you know, she was fighting for her life and we were fighting the insurance companies. But, you know, having a child like that in the middle of a pandemic is, is a very scary situation. And I personally can't risk having my two older kids go into an environment where they're going to potentially be exposed to the virus and bring it back. Yeah. You know, this pandemic is forcing us all to to really look at what's important and, and change the way we, we handle things. How are you reaching out to voters during this pandemic? Yeah, well, you know, there's a couple of different things I'm doing, you know, going back to thinking about the schools is I'm helping to support organizations and groups of grassroots who are trying to make a difference. So there's a very fantastic group of school leaders, teachers, and parents who are protesting uh, the opening. Um, they have a, a planned protest coming up this Friday that I'm going to be participating in as well. Uh, and they happen to actually be uh, parents and teachers from my kids' school. And they're really just pointing out some of the practical realities to school and what it would mean to have you know children try to be socially distant. So I'm supporting those kinds of uh activities. I've been supporting the leaders of the peaceful protests and uh, trying to engage with them as much as I can, you know, through things like the teacher protests on Friday and then um, get out the vote uh, car caravan on Saturday. Those kinds of activities I'm helping to support and, and participate in as well. But to connect with the everyday voter We've had to switch to a totally virtual campaign. Uh, and as a millennial, uh, that wasn't a super hard shift for me. Um, but um, it was something that uh, I've had to do, again, because of my vulnerable daughter, but really wanting to connect with people. So I am here you know, connecting with people across social media, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Facebook Lives every Friday, trying to get people to hear what I have to say and to hear what they have to say as well. Um, I also have been doing texting campaigns. Now we've texted, we've done three rounds of texting campaigns, uh, listening campaigns, introduction campaigns. And the most recent, by the way, was a uh, vote by mail and get out the vote um, texting campaign. So we're happy to support that to make sure that everybody has the ability to exercise their right to vote here in Southwest Florida. And then hosting some additional town halls with some very great candidates uh, who are, we're joining together to amplify our voice, um, such as uh, Anselm Weber for State House 76 and Rachel Brown for uh, Senate District and Juan Gonzalez, who's running for county commissioner here in Southwest Florida in Lee County. Yeah. So you mentioned participating in local protests and some uh, some other virtual events. I know you are uh, planning on participating in the No Dem Left Behind Coalition Virtual Town Hall uh, here on the 16th. But tell us a little bit about that coalition and what's been happening with them here recently. Yeah, absolutely. You know, being part of No Dem Left Behind is a game changer, frankly. Um, it's something that us Democrats running in deep red districts, we just really need to do, which is band together and pool our resources and get out there and fight. It's the only way that we can overcome the money and political machine of the Republicans, especially in these deep red districts. So No Dem Left Behind is a coalition of candidates, congressional candidates across the country, um, a lot of rural candidates, but there's you know, I'm here in our kind of coastal district as well, but we are um, trying to get our voice out by getting some really, 
you know, big name folks to host virtual town halls for us. So coming up this Thursday, July 16th, Chelsea Handler is going to be doing a town hall for us. And we're really looking forward to it. It's going to be a great time. And this is a free event that you can learn about the candidates um, and, and, you know, see Chelsea Handler and participate. We also have Sarah Cooper coming up. So Sarah Cooper is the comedian that's been doing all Trump and, you know, just kind of acting out his insane words providing a little bit of joy and humor for us during these really dark times. But we know that that's going to be a really great uh, virtual town hall coming up on July 23rd. We have some additional really big name people coming out to support us as well. I I've been told to hold my tongue until we get the dates and everything um, locked down, but definitely check them out at nodemleftbehind.com. Follow us on Twitter at NDLB 2020. I promote all of that stuff as well, and we would love to have you come. And I'm just so thankful to be part of this kind of coalition, um, working to make up that differential and to not handing more districts over to the Republicans. And that's a big rallying cry for us. Absolutely. And so, Cindy, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody where they can find more about you and where they can get involved? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm a grassroots candidate, so every little bit helps. Every volunteer, every dollar makes a huge difference. So you can get all of that information on my website at cindybanier.com. That's C-I-N-D-Y, B as in boy, A-N as in Nancy, Y-A-I.com. And I smell it so you can vote. Um, you can also follow me on social media at SWFLMom2020. That's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, hop on Twitter if you want to get into some of the these, these discussions. Uh, follow me on Facebook for information about events and really local conversation. Uh, Instagram's more like storytelling stuff. So if you want to see a little bit of a peek inside my life, uh, that's where you can find that information as well. We absolutely need people to volunteer as well. Virtual, all virtual, like I said. So if you want to hop on uh, the phones and texts and stuff, definitely um, check out my website and click that volunteer tab because we need you to flip this district. Awesome. So, Dr. Banya, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely, Jeff. My pleasure. Today on the podcast, we have Democratic candidate for U.S. House District 19, Mr. David Holden. David, thank you for coming on. You bet, Jeff. Great to be here. So let's start off. I have to ask you about the coronavirus uh, while I have you. The state reported on Sunday 15,300 cases, which set the record for the country during the whole pandemic. And again, today, Monday, they reported another 12,000 cases. I mean, to put that in perspective, the state of Florida has had more cases in the last five days, 58,651, than in the first three months, March, April, and May combined. Mm -hmm. I just want to get your thoughts on how our leaders have handled this here in Florida and also in Washington, D.C., um, <clears throat> I mean, there's no other way to say it than it's a complete abdication of responsibility and failure in leadership, both in Washington and Tallahassee. I mean, that's just flat out the way it is. I talked to a dear friend who's uh, living in Brussels and he and his wife had to go to Spain for a medical procedure and they're reopening, you know, and Spain got hammered, uh, but they did the things that adults do in a crisis. They followed the best science and medical advice available at the time. They quarantined, they contact traced, they did the distancing, they're doing the masks, and they have been able to, to a limited extent, reopen. We're not, forget about a second wave, we're still in the first wave. 
And when you decide that your own political survival matters more than the lives of Americans, and we're in some very dark waters. Uh, and it's not, it's simply not going to change until Joe Biden is sworn in on January 20th. Yeah. And, you know, we're starting to see, uh, you know, these decisions are going to start affecting school reopenings. And, and mm -hmm. you know, the Republican leadership, both in Washington and Tallahassee, uh, are continuing to ignore facts and science and are pushing forward with schools to reopen without any concern for the human cost that may be exacted. Speak about these decisions that DeSantis and, and Trump are kind of pushing on the American people? Well, it, you know, the plan is no plan, right? The plan is if there, there are two uh, impulses pushing the response in both Washington and Tallahassee. The first is, how do we reelect Donald Trump? Well, if we can open the schools, which will allow parents to uh, work and get the economy going, maybe people will forget everything that has gone before that and reelect this, you know, abject failure as president. And the other piece, and I think the, mo the more important one really is <clears throat> the clear intent of the Trump administration and, uh, and, and Betsy DeVos to defund public education and transfer that money to for-profit charter schools. That's what her life's work is. Trump has signed on for it. We know DeSantis supports that. Uh, so, you know, here's just some of the things they're not thinking about. For instance, you know, how do we protect the health of teachers, staff, and children, right? Uh, one third of teachers nationally are over the age of 50, which puts them at a higher risk group. I would imagine that that number is higher here in Florida. Uh, you know, there's no planning going on. I've talked to um, a woman who's a teacher in Miami-Dade and a, and a union steward. Uh, they're supposed to open in what, three weeks? They have no idea how that's gonna happen, what the procedures are, what are they, what are they gonna do when a teacher gets sick or when a child gets sick, or when a staff member gets sick, because there's virtually no substitutes available. So it's not just that it's a bad idea, it's that there's literally no thought going into the implications of what they're trying to do. Yeah, and it's not like schools in a non-pandemic were these, uh, you know, super clean uh, bastions of health where, you know, right. where uh, flus and viruses didn't spread already. So I, I don't really understand why opening them up is going to somehow not result in uh, further spikes in the... in. Well, I mean, it's a running joke, right? If you've got a child of school age, everybody in the house is going to be sick a couple times a month. And, you know, I, I know children are, if children today are anything like I was, they're really good at following orders over long periods of time. <laughs> but they're putting working parents into a terrible bind. So uh, the woman who's, who cuts my hair, she's got her own business. Her husband works full time. They have an eight-year-old daughter. They don't want to send her to school, but they don't have the resources to, to pay for childcare. So... You know, we're using it's almost blackmail on working families uh, if schools reopen where they may have to sit and put their children in harm's way. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. But of course, this is a state where they let Disney World reopen. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and, you know, before the pandemic even hit us, mm -hmm. Betsy DeVos and the Trump administration had called just last year for cuts of close to $7 billion to the federal budget for public schools. Yeah. I mean, even 
before the COVID crisis, we were uh, we were dealing with some pretty poor public education numbers here in the state, right. um, and COVID will no doubt add to that. Um, what do we need to do to begin to move in the right direction? Well, you know, first, let's say if you want to see what the plan is in Washington, you don't have to look further than Florida, because I think last year we gave $800 million in our money, public money, tax money, took it out of the state budget and gave it to for-profit charter schools with very little accountability. Uh, that's got to stop, right? If you want to send your children to private school, write a check. Uh, that's not the purpose of public education. It's not the purpose of tax money. Uh, they've been very good at, um, at kind of moving the, uh, the target. They, they have a lot of language about freedom of choice. But we've seen in Collier County what happens when you invest in a school district, when you have the right leadership like Dr. Patton, who took Collier from, I think, 36th or 40th to second or third in the state. We can do the job in public schools with public money, but we can if they keep training resources. And they're doing this to try to create failure so then they can say, see, the public schools have failed. So we have to do, we have to invest much more deeply in public education, but we also have to begin to have the conversation about how those schools are funded. It is patently unfair that students who live in, in communities that don't have the same resources or tax base get a different kind of education than people than children do who whose parents live in Port Royal or Naples. It's just not fair. That's not the American way. So it's a big it's like the conversation about making Juneteenth a national holiday. That's the easy part, right? How do we get to the underlying issues? So how do we get to the underlying issues about guaranteeing every American child an equal free public education? Before we let you go, tell everybody where they can reach out and find you yep. and get involved. Yep. So, uh, folks, if you haven't uh, gotten your vote by mail ballot, I urge you to do that. Uh, the primary is August 18th. You can reach us at uh, holdenforflorida.com. That's H-O-L-D-E-N-F-O-R, florida.com. Awesome. David, thank you so much. You bet, Jeff. If you guys are interested in hearing more about what's going on with the local Democratic Party, the Florida Democratic Party, local candidates, events, when they are possible again, and local news, there are a number of ways you can hear from us. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or just check in at our website for all the local Democratic Party info. You can find all of these signups on our website at www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. Thank you for all your support. Today's panel discussion, we are going to talk about COVID-19 again, because that is the dominant topic of discussion around the country and in Florida. We're going to talk about the Obamacare repeal that the Trump administration is pursuing, and we are going to talk about the decision to try to open schools this fall. But let me welcome Amber and Linda again to the podcast. Hey, guys. Bonjour. Konnichiwa. Let's dive into the COVID swamp that is the state of Florida and the United States. We have seen over the last week and a half a surge in coronavirus cases that have just continued from earlier in the month. Today on July 10th, 
We've seen 11,400 cases here in the state of Florida, and yet we don't seem to be changing anything. It's the definition of crazy, um, expecting different results from doing the exact same set of things. So I will give you one more uh, really depressing statistic, and this is from ourworldindata.org, which is a site through the University of Oxford that's tracking coronavirus cases around the world. And as of today, July 10th, they are showing that the number of cases that are confirmed per million people in the United States is 190 cases per 1 million. To put that in perspective, the European Union is at nine cases per million people. So just a rate of 20 to 1, and the European Union is a larger economy, larger uh, population, And you look at another industrialized nation like Germany, Germany is on the low end, even in the European Union, of 4.71 cases per million people. I I don't know how to explain it in any other way of the just utter failure by the United States of America to deal with this crisis. The only thing that has been a saving grace in the previous weeks was that uh, hospitalizations and death rates had remained lower than in the early parts of the pandemic, but those are starting to creep up now. And we can only expect them to continue to go up with the number of cases that we're seeing. You know, I don't know why anyone in their right mind would think it'd be a good idea to repeal any form of health care in the middle of a pandemic. But that seems to be what the Trump administration is interested in doing. Linda, you said you did some research and looking into the Obamacare repeal. And do you want to kick us off on that? Yeah. So as I was was reading about the Republican efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act, my mind went to a 60 Minutes episode that I saw. So in 2008, I saw the 60 Minutes segment and it, it was so interesting to me. Stan Brock, and he ran an aid organization called Remote Area Medical. And this organization provided free medical care, dental, and vision care. They normally worked out of the Amazon. So basically, this guy was like a fighter pilot, and he would go in and just pack the plane full of volunteers and supplies and head over to the Amazon and drop all that stuff off and then do clinics. Well, by the time of the 60 Minutes piece, he was doing 60% of his efforts here in the United States. And in this particular episode, the 60 Minutes interviewer, Scott Pelley, went to a town in uh, Tennessee. And it, it struck me. It struck me as an American citizen, as a new mom, as someone sitting in my comfortable living room, looking at all of these people who are working class Americans. They're are middle income Americans who cannot afford health care. So at that time in 2008, the number for uninsured in America was 47 million, but that didn't take into account the underinsured. So we fast forward to 2010, Obama implements his Obamacare Act, and it's the highlight of his domestic policy. And so now we're going to flash forward 10 more years and <laughs> every Republican has just been trying to repeal this act. And not only do they say repeal, they say replace. So in this recent Supreme Court filing, 
currently in America, we have 23 million people during a pandemic that rely on this insurance, along with the 27 million currently uninsured and underinsured. Again, that's important to say, because if someone gets sick right now, they still have to meet their deductibles. And a lot of people don't have jobs anymore. So if, if they even still have insurance, how are they going to meet those high deductibles? So what does the Trump administration want to do but repeal this act during a global pandemic? I mean, guys, I'm going to throw it to you. How does any of this make sense? Yeah, I, and the other part of that is that what we've seen in the approval rating of the Affordable Care Act has gone up over the last 10 years. Gallup just released a set of polling here uh, in March relating to the Affordable Care Act, and they show the approval ratings that the public gave the Affordable Care Act from November 2012 all the way through February 2020, and it went from as low as 37% when the plan was implemented in January 2014 to now it's over 52% approve of that particular plan. We need to all remember that the Affordable Care Act has gone through a pretty dramatic swing in terms of public approval over the last decade or so. And you would imagine that during this pandemic, that that approval rating would only go up. But what I'd also like to point out to everybody is that we need to remember the sequence in which the Affordable Care Act came into being and then also what the Republicans have tried to do over the last basically four years since President Trump took office to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So the law was passed in 2010, and once the uh, Republicans took control in 2010 of the U.S. House of Representatives, they voted over 70 times to repeal Obamacare. And in those 70 times, there was no replacement bill. They just voted to repeal, but they knew it wouldn't go anywhere because President Obama was in the White House and Democrats controlled the Senate up until 2014. And so the polling came out to show that the public actually liked Obamacare and didn't want it repealed unless there was a replacement. So the Republicans switched to this argument of repeal and replace. And so once President Trump took office in January of 2017, the Republicans immediately started to try to repeal Obamacare and replace it. And the replacement bill that they came forward with was such a dramatic and awful failure that it failed famously with John McCain casting the deciding vote to kill the bill. So they basically gave up trying to repeal and replace. They realized it was an unpopular thing. Now, the one thing that they did do, which is leading to this particular court battle, is that in the tax bill that they did pass back in 2017 that gave huge tax cuts to the wealthiest Americans, billionaires, and, and corporations, within that tax bill, they inserted the removal of the fines for health insurance. If you don't get health insurance in the original Obamacare law, you would pay a fine basically a tax. And that famously got upheld by the Supreme Court. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in his majority opinion that that fine was in essence a tax and it was completely legal. Well, the Republicans said, we're going to remove that fine. And if you don't get health insurance, you don't have to pay a fine. Well, then they immediately file a brief in court saying that the law is unconstitutional 
because they removed that fine. So on the one hand, they originally took it to the Supreme Court saying that it should be unconstitutional because you can't mandate this. The Supreme Court said, yes, it's a tax. It's normal. It's fine. Go ahead. They removed the tax and they say, well, now it's unconstitutional because there's no fine. The bottom line is, is they want to remove Obamacare and they want to get rid of it without doing legislation because doing it through legislation is bad politics for them. They realize the American public wants Obamacare to stay and they don't want to repeal it. And so they think if we can somehow get the Supreme Court to repeal it and overturn it, they can act like, well, it wasn't us. And people need to remember that this isn't just about getting insurance and underinsured. This is also includes the protections for pre-existing conditions. I think some people forget what it was like pre-2010 when those things were okay. I, I really don't understand where the Republicans are going with this. It's not good during any time period. They saw that in 2018. They ran on repealing and replacing Obamacare to the point where in the next midterm election, they lost 41 seats. It was a historic top five biggest routes in seat total that a political party has had. And they know it won't work. And so I don't understand what they're trying to do here other than it's just another example of the Trump administration being unusually and unacceptably cruel. But it's also important to say that I think Trump's mantra as soon as he took office, is to repeal anything that had Obama's name on it. And oh, that's absolutely. a shock. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's a shocking motivation to, you know, fuel your politics. But I mean, he shows it time and time again. And to proceed with this during this time, knowing the catastrophic effects it could have on our country, just further shows that I mean, he's got a score to settle. And on his little sheet, it still says Obamacare, and he hasn't been able to put an X on it. A lot of other things he has, but this one, you know, is proving a bit more difficult for him to kill. So I have a question for you guys then. If we know that this is a popular program and we know that they are still trying to kill it, but do you think that they'll actually use health care or repealing Obamacare as a positive thing to run on? No, I don't think that they're going to run on Obamacare. It's been kind of settled in the last election cycle. But and also, Jeff, for for anyone listening that ever has a discussion about what, you know, so many detractors of, of the Affordable Care Act say is is basically tantamount to like socialized medicine. I mean, I run into that a lot. The Affordable Care Act in its inception and currently right now, especially for people that are on it, it's it's not remotely perfect. Does it have high premiums? Yes. Does it have, you know, pretty high deductibles? It sure does. Does it have the protective factors that you were talking about? Yes. But you and I had discussion the other day when it was founded, it was founded to be tinkered and played with and moved on from, right? No, it was the expansion of Medicaid and states to cover the state's needs. Uh, You know, there's a variety of things that still need to do that Democrats, yes, have been trying to do, but they've been consistently blocked by a Republican-led Congress. Yeah, the, 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 the intent of every law is that you write the law to the best of your ability, but then as issues come up, you adjust to fix those issues that come up. That's 
the nature of governing. You know, things change, circumstances change. You find out things, you make changes. That's what you have to do. But as Mitch McConnell said famously, their goal was to remove President Obama and to not give him any win. And Republicans made a decision way back when that they were not going to negotiate, they were not going to try to work on anything. And it was better for them to allow the Obamacare platform to wither and to not be tinkered with so that all of the faults would just remain instead of making small changes here and there to strengthen it and make it better. You know, one of the other reasons why Obamacare is hard to replace for Republicans is because it's the Republican plan. That plan was a conservative think tank plan that came about in the early 90s when Hillary Clinton was pushing forward a universal health care plan. The Republicans came up with an alternative that was basically what Obamacare is. And then Mitt Romney in Massachusetts, when he was Republican governor of Massachusetts, he basically took the plan that this conservative think tank put forward in the early 90s and implemented it in Massachusetts. And so President Obama, he took that plan and added a public option. He expanded Medicaid so that we could ensure more people and not put so much of the burden onto employers. And so basically, it's, this is a conservative Republican plan. But as soon as a Democrat suggested it, the Republicans said, no, this is awful. We can't do this. This is, this is, this is government takeover. Every other industrialized nation insures 100% of their, their people at 12% of GDP on average. The United States insures 85% of their population, and they spend 18% of GDP. So I hear all the time about Republicans saying that they want to streamline the government. They want to work through efficiencies and save money through efficiencies and stop all the waste and whatnot. But they won't go and do the very thing that would save the most money for the U.S. government. Six percent of GDP. I mean, our GDP is roughly three trillion dollars. I mean, we're talking about two hundred billion dollars a year. I don't think it's a good idea that the Trump administration is running on this. I think it's only going to point out, I mean, he's already failing massively at COVID, but then to add on it that, yeah, I also think that less people should have health care. I don't think that that's going to make you look better during a pandemic. So I think this is a huge mistake on their part. And also as Democrats, and this is for all of our listeners as well, coming into November and post-November, of course, there's a lot of people out there who you know, wanted Bernie, you know, wanted someone that they deemed way more progressive than Joe Biden. But our work as a liberal party, as a Democratic Party, isn't over in November. If you want to hold Joe Biden accountable to progressive ideals, then that just means your voice needs to get louder if we are successful come November. It's not it's it's not done. We're not done. Yes, we want Trump out of office, but then we still need to hold our Democratic people accountable as well. In addition to that, I'm going to say that it's people need to realize that this isn't just about the president. Okay, you're not happy about Biden being the nominee. Okay, you don't think he's progressive enough. I would point out that his platform is as progressive as any Democratic platform that we've ever had. Uh, It may not be as far as you want, but life rarely gives you everything that you want. But Laws are made in the legislature. The president signs it. So 
I personally don't believe that if a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate pass a bill that President Biden is going to veto it. Your representatives in Congress are important. Your senators are important. But also your state representatives, your state senators, your governor have huge impacts on how life is in and around your community. And all you have to do is think about how liberal and how progressive is Oregon and Washington compared to Alabama and Mississippi. Same country, same president, two totally different life experiences. And th- that is because the representatives in those, in those areas, state representatives, are progressive and they're promoting policies that are in line with the progressive platform. It's more than just the president. And you need to vote for every single office because change happens at all levels. Hallelujah. Amen. (laughs) Speaking of really poor decisions to do in a pandemic, let's talk about opening schools back up. Amber, do you want to just lead us into this debacle that is unfolding in front of our eyes? Sure. Yeah. So this week there has been a lot of discussion about the schools reopening, not only in the United States as a whole, but in Florida as well. And just to put the cloud around this with the current coronavirus outbreak, we are still seeing surges. Florida is still hitting some of the highest numbers that it has throughout this entire thing. In the last three days, we've started to see that the death rate from this has increased for three days in a row. And that's probably something that will continue as well. But before we get into everything that happened this week, let me just say that everybody wants schools to reopen. Parents, teachers, students, the, the communities as a whole want schools to reopen. But we need to do them safely. And I think that's the difference between what the Republicans are currently proposing and what the Democrats and the CDC and some other people are proposing. And also, much like everything else that we've seen thus far, we have wasted this time since we closed in March that we could have been setting up systems and getting things in place for the situation where our numbers were too high and it was too unsafe to open in August. And what we're seeing now is that it seems like people are scrambling at the last minute. And that to me is just shocking. We're four weeks away from schools reopening here in Florida and there still has not been a plan released in most counties. Teachers don't know what what is going to happen. Parents don't know what is going to happen. Um, but what we do know is that this week had uh, Trump had a, a roundtable discussion, basically pressuring the schools across the country that they should fully reopen, which just kind of puts blinders on what is currently happening. The Florida Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran issued an executive order this week for the state of Florida requiring all K through 12 to open in August five days a week. You know, and I think to myself, I'm like, we have canceled school since since March. We knew that our kids weren't going to go back and our numbers weren't even that high. And as we've watched all of our numbers grow throughout this summer, I, I think 
so many people in government, local, and in DC are, are having their couple months of magical thinking. Uh, we're, we're just a couple weeks away from the official opening of school. Okay. And so when are we going to get real here? When is the magical thinking going to stop and, and the real thinking going to take place where Trump doesn't just issue a mandate? Because that's what he did. It wasn't a suggestion. It was schools will need to reopen shouty capitals. But, oh, yeah, uh, I don't actually have a plan for that. I, I just what is what has changed? That's my thing. We closed down schools, as you said, Linda, with less cases, essentially at a safer moment. We said, hey, this is too unsafe. We're closing down schools. What has changed? Does anyone know, like, what is the number one spreading place in life? <laughs> it's schools. And it's not like you're, you're going to have teachers there. You're going to have staff there. They're going to interact with kids. Okay, it doesn't affect them. It's still going to spread. And then the teacher gets it. He, she comes home. Like, what are we doing? Like, it just... Again, it's a political move. It's, it's just that's all it is. Well, that's what I was looking for a quote from President Trump. And he's had multiple quotes this week. This is something he said during their roundtable discussion. They think it's going to be good for them politically. So they keep the schools closed, Trump said. No way. We're very much going to put pressure on governors and everybody else to open schools. And then during a tweet, he says, they think it will help them in November. Wrong. The people get it. Everything is about him. All of this discussion, there's been no specific plans. And again, I go back to my statement. Everybody wants the schools to open. We know that it's much better for kids to be in school. We know that the social isolation can cause problems with children. We know that there's children that are in unsafe environments at home and the school is their safest place. But that's in a normal situation. We're not in a normal situation right now. You know, I would, I would hope that with all of the minds that have had months and months to come up with plans about this, that there would be options. And some, some counties and districts are doing that, but basically having options. So if a kid is in a worse environment at home, that they have an option maybe to attend school. But basically, if you look at it all all of the plans that are outside of like, let's just go back to school exactly as it was before and pretend like this isn't happening. All of those plans require funding. And that is one thing that we have still not seen throughout this time. In the initial CARES Act, they allotted about $13 billion to the schools in order to help them prepare for dealing with the coronavirus, but that $13 billion was less than 1% of the entire stimulus, which are going to be seeing an influx of about 57 million students when schools reopen. And that does not even include the staff that is also involved in that. Also, in May, the House Democrats passed a $58 billion aid for schools, and the Senate has yet to take up the bill. It's just sitting there. And every day we're inching closer and closer to schools reopening. And that's what the people who say, okay, these are the things you need in order for schools to reopen. Obviously, the distancing measures and, and things like that, which many schools are not equipped to do. But in order for them to take any of these steps, they need a massive amount of funding just to have 
Kleenexes and hand sanitizer and pencils and markers and all this stuff at, in their classroom, they have parents donate that. Now we need these on exponential levels. And where is this coming from? You know, it's, it's President Trump in his tweets about this came out and said, falsely said that other countries are opening up their schools. Germany, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, along with many other countries, are open with no problems, he says. And then the news articles, all of these countries are coming back saying, that's just not true. The German chancellor of education in the state of Bavaria said students of all schools are back, but not every day. And they go face-to-face instruction only takes place in very, very small groups. And not to mention, as we mentioned earlier in this, Europe has nine cases per million people right now. Like, like, think about that in perspective. The European Union is taking opening schools more cautiously with a dramatically lower outbreak right now than the United States is. And how is this possible? And we're like in the midst of record-breaking numbers every single day. We're going to just say, send them back in full force. Honestly, we're living in a time that history is going to look back on and people are just going to say, what in the hell were they thinking? Yeah. So two things that other countries have done is that they only opened when they were seeing reduced rates of new infections, not only reduced rates, but significantly less than what we are seeing. Um, When Germany reopened, they were about 35 cases per million people. Um, But the second thing that the European and Asian countries have done is given money towards preventative measures for staffing measures adding staff, adding new teachers to allow to put in the, the correct safety guidelines so that when the kids go back, the kids are safe and the teachers are safe. And we are not doing that at all. We're just saying, go back like you were and let's just see what happens. And, you know, this is, we look at like other organizations that have gone back on much smaller scales and not dealing with children. For example, uh, a lot of the sports teams, college and professional, we see over and over again in almost every sport so far, we've seen that once they begin their practicing, they have to quarantine because many members are coming down with the virus. We saw a story this week about a Missouri summer camp that had to close after 82 kids and staff were infected with the coronavirus. How do they expect that that's going to not happen when we go back to schools? And, and another thing that you have to take into account is not only is this going to affect everybody in the community, but currently, locally, Lee Health today said that their ICU was 91% full. And the CEO warned that at this rate, they would expect that their ICU beds would be completely full by the end of the month. So if you think about that, if, if our hospitals currently, whilst children a large portion of our population have not been interacting in school settings, in these enclosed all-day settings with hundreds or thousands of other children. That has not been happening since March. And we currently are looking at our local hospitals, ICU beds, or potentially even their, the entire hospital, 
becoming full. And this is prior to the start of school. How do we think that once these outbreaks, which will happen, there is no question that it will happen in schools, students, teachers, staff, this will get passed around. Teachers will get it. Staff will get it. And it will spread more rampantly in the community. There is absolutely no way around this. How do we expect that we're going to sustain this model when we are already stretched so thin? You know, and then you just think about the logistics. Okay, so let's say, let's say on best case scenario, they're able to put in all of these safety measures that they're hoping for. They can distance the students six feet in the classroom. They can make all of the students and all of the staff can wear masks the way they're supposed to and wash their hands and all the, all of the things that they're recommending, temperature checks and um, one-way hallways and lunch in the classroom, all that stuff. Well, we know it's inevitable that some student's going to have it, which means some class is going to be infected. So at that stage, is that entire class going to be quarantined? Are they staying home? What about the teacher? So what if the teacher has it? Is now the teacher going to be quarantined for one to two weeks? Well, who's coming in now to teach these kids when this teacher is quarantined? Who has the teacher come in contact with? Have they been in contact with other teachers? Well, what about them? You just have this, it's like a snowball effect that really doesn't make any sense. You know, you say, what do they expect? I think they expect there to be infections and they are okay with it. And if you think about just on the Republican standpoint, I know Trump's whole issue is about him and getting the economy and you can't have the economy going with the schools and that puts pressure on working families and all that kind of stuff. But let's just assume that what we think is going to happen will happen just like it pretty much has with all of these things. We reopen the state. Oh, well, in about six weeks or so, we're going to start seeing the rates go up. Well, hey, guess what happened? So let's say we start schools back up. Well, in about six weeks or so, what's going to happen? We're going to see either the schools are going to have to shut down or we're just going to be seeing major problems at the schools. Well, now we're like the beginning of October is that where the Republicans want to be going into this election? If you're really talking about election, like having just schools in utter chaos a month before the election doesn't sound like a good plan either. And you think about like when we reopened, we reopened, our numbers were down. If you look at that graph, the curve was at its lowest point when we reopened. So it takes time for that community spread to build up and build up and build up and build up to where we get to the point where we are now. Well, we're here now. We're already here now. We're like at the top of that graph. So we're starting school at the top of the graph. Where's it going to go from there? I don't Onto know. another page of graph paper. <laughs> That's true. It's, it's one of those things where you just have to trust us. It's, it's high. It's not there anymore, but you can't see it. And I understand, so you know, I mean, I understand the dilemma. I have children. Linda has children. We have to make this decision for ourselves. And if we don't send our children to school, my job, I own my own business, is going to suffer economically. But I think that's a decision that I'm going to need to make because I think the safety that we're seeing right now is just not there. And um, I'm fortunate that I can make that decision, but some people can't. And even worse, our teachers and a, a lot of our teacher population are on the older side 
especially here in Florida. You know, I think about this more and more, Amber. I, you know, hearing you lay it out that way, you know, it makes me just wonder, is the real reason why Republicans don't want to deal with this is because the only way to deal with this is through a robust government response. Yeah. And it's against their whole being to have a robust government response. I mean, they've been arguing for basically since the Reagan years in the 80s, 40 years, they've been arguing this, that the government can't do anything and private industry is the only way that anything worthwhile gets done. That's been their guiding light for four decades. And the only way you can deal with this, because you're saying, how are we going to do it? Well, you need to have a massive amount of spending come out so that you can increase teachers, yes. so that you can have more students spread out. You need to increase funding for the schools so that they can have hand sanitizer and all this stuff. That, in, that just entails a massive expansion of federal government, right. and they just don't want to do it. And so the only way they can get around it is say, well, just go back. And so, you know. Right. Put your heads I, in I the sand like we did when we reopened. Yeah. But and I just how'd that go? The, the Republican Party is the quote, party of personal responsibility. And I just find it amazing that the party of personal responsibility has no community responsibility. You know, but I honestly, it comes down to, I just don't think they want to do anything with the government. Like when their, their whole mantra has been, the government is, is bad, that if they have to go and actually use the government, it undercuts all of their arguments everywhere else. Because if they go out and did it well, if they go out and do a, a great government response, and then the Democrats say, look at how great you guys did with this, this response. Why don't we take that same approach and apply it to the rest of education? Why don't we take that same approach and apply it to healthcare or to the environment or to something? And, and then they can't say, well, no, because government's bad. Because they just proved that the government could be good. Because you're, you're absolutely right. The Republicans do not want the schools to be open and in chaos in October. Right. Like they don't want that at all. It's not a good look. But they're and, just but they're passing the buck. It, it, it's what they do. Throw it to the states, make a mandate, throw it to the states. It's what's been happening this whole pandemic. Right. So the yeah, blame is the individual exactly. States, so then like, you're going to say, well, and I mean they're going to pick on the on the more liberal uh, states first. Well, no, you because know, they're was, coming up with, they're actually coming up with. They're coming some, up with their, with their own plans. Yeah, sure. But I, like Betsy yeah. DeVos saying that she's seriously looking into defunding schools who are not opening as a five day a week kind of thing, which is just insane because the federal government only provides about 10% of funding for the schools. And that 10% is to support usually the lowest income, the disabled Basically, the students that need the most help is where we get that funding fund. Yeah. So they're going to cut that funding. Well, that's great. (laughs) That seems like a circular argument. I know. I I hear you, Jeff. I hear your frustration. I don't know what their reasoning is for this. Well, it's it's the only reason I can come up with is is that they just don't want to do it because it's a government program. But also, I mean, I feel like they don't want to do this because, in essence, it is very hard. And it's that governance thing that you were talking about. They're wonderful at getting elected. You know what? They, they could use some pointers on actual governance. 
you know, and, and this, just, this takes a lot. It's a lot to say, well, this is how we think you should go about doing this. What are yeah. my suggestions to do this other than whatever, what the CDC said is just too harsh. They're going to yeah, need to rethink harsh. that. We need to change those because <sighs> I don't know. I, I mean, I, luckily the guy came out and said that that was. No, I'm proud of the CDC for, yes, for came out um, today. You know, being yesterday. strong and saying this is our message and we're not changing our message. I think that's great. It's about time someone put on their big boy pants and decided to confront our current president. I don't know why at this point in time, Republicans can't be bipartisan and just work together to try and and safely get our kids back into school. I think people forget we dodged a bullet in 2008 with the financial crisis. I mean, Republicans didn't help at all during the financial crisis. But luckily, Democrats had the House and the Senate and the presidency from 08 to 2010. So they were able to put in place a massive stimulus package. They were able to put in place Obamacare. They were able to pass a bunch of laws that would would benefit people. And the only solutions to massive problems like this is through coordinated government action. And that's the antithesis of what they believe in. And so as a party, we need to make the argument that this is why Democrats believe in government action, because you're seeing the inability of the private industry and the market to address large scale problems in real time. You know, Blue Cross Blue Shield isn't fixing the pandemic. Pfizer isn't fixing the pandemic. These companies are not going to be able to coordinate in a way that is going to address any of the concerns or any of the issues that we're facing. There is an entity that is there, that is designed to coordinate between all 50 states and all of these organizations to be able to make sure everyone's coordinated and moving in the same direction so that we all can benefit from it. And it's called the United States government. And if they're not going to do that, then, you know, don't expect it to get any better. So this is a developing issue going on. And I know the Collier County School Board is making a decision next week on how they're going to handle reopening uh, in August. So we will be following this issue as we move forward, but let's go ahead and end it on that. Amber, Linda, thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks, Jackie. So that's our show. I want to thank Dr. Banier and Mr. Holden for joining us. Thanks to Agent 13 for the theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have only 103 days left until election day please get involved now hope everyone is staying safe out there until next time so long